Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and this is awesome. Talking to some of the most interesting, accomplished, thoughtful, and fun people in our culture has been the thrill of a lifetime. And we love to continue on this journey and build on what we started. And you, if you appreciate what we've been doing, I have a favor to ask. Would you support our program? It's easy to do. You can do it through our website at politicsandreligion.us or on Patreon at patreon.com slash politics and religion. And of course, you can always support us by telling a friend about TPNR, giving us a review on your podcast app, whichever one you listen on, or simply following us on any of our social platforms. Any way you can support us would be greatly appreciated so we can continue having the kinds of conversations we're having today with such an esteemed guest. Jonathan Rausch is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He is the author of eight books and many articles on public policy, culture, and government. He is a contributing writer for The Atlantic and recipient of the 2005 National Magazine Award. That's the magazine industry's equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. His latest book, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth, is a deep diving account of how to push back against disinformation, canceling, and other new threats to our fact-based epistemic order, much of which we'll be discussing today. And I love using that word, epistemology. (laughs) We'll also be discussing Denial, My 25 Years Without a Soul, a memoir of his struggle with his sexuality. And next on my list, we were just discussing this before I hit record, will have to be The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. Uh, I'm wondering if that includes how my hair isn't as gray at 60 or something. I don't know. <laughs> I would love to have your hair, Corey. <laughs> um, no just, complaints. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm trying to own it. You know, the it's gray, but you know, I got, I got the whole, you know, COVID lockdown it's, locks and it's hot. Gay guys. No, take my word for it. Oh, uh, duly noted. I appreciate that. Um, his writing has also appeared in many other publications, including the economist, Time, the New York Times. Now, here's something that caught my attention. The New York Daily News and the New York Post. If you're from New York, you know that that's kind of a big deal. Uh, Time, New York Times, New York Daily News, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, the LA Times, Slate, and many others. And Jonathan graduated from Yale University. He's a recipient of numerous national and international awards for his writing and has appeared as a guest on many television and radio programs. But perhaps most remarkably, and this is my first question, he does not like shrimp. So Jonathan Rausch, let's get the record straight. What did shrimp ever do to you? <laughs> you know, I put that on the, on the resume at the very bottom just to see how many people would read all the way through. <laughs> that was and I'm amazed. That is the one thing everyone calls out shrimp. I'm sorry, Corey, it does not taste like food. That is the problem with shrimp. You know how Wait. it's cilantro tastes to some people? That, that's me. That's how shrimp tastes to me. It's it is not food like even the minutest quantities of shrimp will spoil any dish it's in. It's like adding Clorox. 
See, I as one Jew to another, we were born into Jewish families. I think that's God punishing you for being a bad Jew. <laughs> no, just kidding. I, I eat pork. Work. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm the. Uh, I don't know. There's some things that just taste like soap to me. So I think there should be a law against what, what was the cilantro? Yeah, there should be laws against cilantro. Um, but uh, on a serious note, I did want to ask you a little bit about your early life. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, do you still play piano? No, I haven't owned a piano since my first job out of college. So yeah, I lost it. And I was, I never really could play piano half, even halfway decently. I wanted to be a musician. The only thing I lacked was talent. And boy, <laughs> did I lack talent. <laughs> so writing was my second choice and I was a bit better at that. Oh, good, good. Yeah, I think I, I had some talent for music. But at that stage of my life, I didn't have the attention span or the discipline to really nurture it. And probably like you, there was a point in my life where I couldn't, I, I couldn't afford an apartment big enough to have a piano. Uh, so I got away from it for long enough to where every time I reapproach the instrument, I, I just, it grieves me how my rust. It growls at you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But someday, someday I'll get back at it. Now, another thing I did want to ask you about, I've heard you on other uh, interviews say that at a relatively early age, uh, we, we talked kind of jokingly about being Jewish, but you, I think the way you described it is you didn't have that gene where you actually believed in God. There was sort of this uh, silliness uh, as you, you might describe it. When did you, when did that occur to you that you just didn't believe in a God? I couldn't tell you exactly when, but but by about the age of five or six, earliest childhood memories, I understood that I was different from most people in three ways that I couldn't even have named back then because I was a little child, but they were always part of me. And one was being Jewish, and that's cultural. It's, it's not religious. I'm, I'm very secular, but um, also deeply Jewish. The second is homosexual. Some of my earliest memories are attractions, crushes on, on um, male figures, including cartoon characters when I was five or six. And the third was I knew that I didn't believe in God. And at one point in my early teens, I went to a serious religious camp and tried to believe in God. And I just couldn't. It, it just, I just knew that it was too silly and ridiculous for me to believe in. I felt kind of sorry for people who did. It, it took me years and a lot of maturing to understand that that religion is for people faith for people who experience it is is a gift in many ways and i i tell people it's a little like being colorblind you know life is fine um and in fact you can trade it but there is a dimension of life that you experience that i don't yeah it's interesting because you describe you, you didn't look through the lens as you described at the end of uh the book Denial that I, I mentioned before, the, look through the lens of being gay until you were 25 years old. So the comparison of coming to the conclusion, like going to a camp to try to believe in God, there were many things that you did throughout your youth that you were trying to be heterosexual. You, you were trying to sort of work your way through something that you were aware of that was different and yet you didn't come to that conclusion until you were 25 years old. 
I, I don't know if I'm making a stretch of a comparison here, but um, it's it's interesting that one you came to early and the other one was, you know, you were a full full grown adult out of college and all that. The, the gay one was by far the hardest to adjust to because I was so determined not to be gay and didn't want that and didn't think I was gay. I just thought I was the world's most neurotic heterosexual that I was incapable of love. We didn't have the word asexual back then, but that was part of what I thought. At other times, I thought it was a stage and I'll, I'd outgrow it. I, I wanted the life you have. And homosexuality in the 60s and 70s when I was growing up, is, it's not like it is today. With being, believing in God, I, I never felt shame about that. And the summer when I tried, it was more like, well, a lot of people swear by this. I should try it. I mean, I really should. People I, I love and respect. So I put myself in that environment. But that was more like exposure, right? I never felt the least bit ashamed or denial about not believing in God. Um, that was never the issue. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that the identity of being Jewish, it, the, the idea of believing in God wasn't the imperative, but the identity of being Jewish was. Does that, I don't know if folks who are like, choose a religion, if that would make sense to them, but that, that was my understanding. So the idea that my brother is, considers himself an agnostic, you know, um, that was never any sort of threat. He could talk about that with my grandparents, but I could never talk to them uh, about after I became a Christian, you know? Oh, I'm guessing they'd rather you were gay. Yeah, that's really hard for Jews. Yeah, And you, you know this. It's something that's hard for, for Christians to understand because in Christianity, redemption comes through faith. Um, Judaism doesn't care so much what you believe about God. It, it cares much more about do you do right by your community? Do you follow the, the mitzvot? It's yeah. much more about culture. It's about, you know, God chose us whether we chose God or not in Judaism. Were you raised Orthodox? We were more observant, I would say, than most of the kids that we grew up with. We did go to an Orthodox synagogue, so we kept kosher in the house. <laughs> you know, that, that was the dividing line. We'd have Chinese food and pizza out of the house, yeah. uh, but in the house, and we observed all the holidays. We weren't like the once-a-year Jews who showed up with our fancy suit on Rosh Hashanah. You know, it was all the I mean, Tish, I knew what Tish B'Av was, <laughs> you know? Did you go to Hebrew school and get bar mitzvah? Yeah. When I went to JCC for nursery school, kindergarten. Uh, and then I, I went to a public school, you know, during the day, but we went to uh, Hebrew school from the first grade bar mitzvah. My father even taught, he helped develop the Hebrew high school in our synagogue. So I went for another three years after bar mitzvah. So. And were you a believer all that time or just kind of going through the motions? I had questions. I think that I had a sense of the existence of God, but I also had questions that I wanted to really, once I was able to articulate those questions, I wanted to really break that down and understand what the, what the real questions were and think through uh, assumptions and suppositions, you know, even, even at a relatively early age. So I, I don't know if I would have articulated it this way, but I did come to a conclusion that an open universe philosophically. Uh, you know what? So I read when I was about 16, I read uh, Brief History, 
Brief History of Time? Was that the mm-hmm. Stephen the, Hawking? Stephen Hawking. Yeah. So I read. I was I was taking physics, and I actually understood the book. <laughs> but it. I loved. I loved how it opened up a whole new set of possibilities. And unlike some of this creation science and so, like, I find a lot of that to be kind of strained bullshit. I, I found it to complement some of these philosophical questions that I was grappling with. So the idea of, as I described, an open universe made made more sense to me. There was that not only that possibility, but it made more sense to me than a purely closed universe within which only what we understand to be the natural order can happen. Not that I'm waiting for, you know, not, not that I, I would insist on the sea actually parting and the seven literal, I would never, you know, I think evolution and big bang and all that stuff makes a hell of a lot more sense than some of my, I, I, I live in Santa Clarita where John MacArthur's university and his church is. So um, even though I went to church, I, with a lot of those guys, it seems very strange to me. Uh, but back to your original question, uh, the concept of an open universe made a lot more sense to me. Did by open universe, you mean a universe that's open to miracles? Yeah. So if you want to drive down on that, I, I would say um, open universe versus closed universe. So open universe, meaning it is, is what we see and what we can observe. Is that it? The, the physical universe is that it or is there something is there something some entity uh that can exist outside of it you know and i'm probably oversimplifying for for our purposes but you know if we take the big bang for example can there be this sort of uh big banger if you will can there be forces that act upon the universe uh that act in conjunction with it can there be a creator you know, a lot of this stuff is kind of beaten up to, to where it sounds cliche, but I, I was just trying to think of it is, is this it, you know, reading Hawking or reading, um, I think it was Lederman who wrote the, uh, the God particle, which he, he said later, he said it should have been the goddamn particle because that, that's, they were looking <laughs> yeah. for that eighth quark or whatever it was and they couldn't find it. And, you know, um, you know, the, so that all made sense to me, but again, Beyond that, is that all there is? Or is there some realm uh, beyond it and entities that can exist beyond what we understand in the physical universe? So there there are two or three bridges there that I couldn't get across. Um, It's one reason I'm, I'm so curious about your story. Most people I've met who are Christians have always been Christians. It's part of the the background. You're a Christian by choice, right? You you were something else and you became this, which implies a level of, of volition and thought that's that gives it more richness to me. But 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 two or three bridges. The, the first is I knew that I couldn't believe in miracles for all the same reasons I didn't believe in Santa Claus. When, when you talk about in abstract terms about some other world, if that world is not at all subject to any of the laws of material reality. There are lots of intangible things that are like, you know, math, for example, you know, you can write it down, but you can't go out and touch it. But I think in order to cross the chasm to faith, you have to be willing to say there are entire realms, which, which are totally inexplicable and which exist completely outside of nature. 
and which can behave and in fact intervene in the natural world in completely random and arbitrary ways. And God is such a spiritual force. And once you do that, you're in the land of epistemic chaos, because at any moment you could just say, well, it's true because God says it's true, or well, it happened because it's a miracle. And you can do that at any point. I never could. I believe that introducing that element of chaos, epistemic chaos, is um, unravels the whole thing. That's a shortcoming on my part, because Francis Collins, one of the great scientists of our time, believes that Jesus Christ literally rose from the dead, yet goes to work as a great biologist every day, operating on the assumption that people don't rise from the dead. So then there's the which is, okay, you say maybe there's there's something else out there, and it's spiritual, and it's not middle, it's not inexplicable, and it happens in the world. The next bridge is saying, okay, that must mean God exists. Well, that's a non sequitur. There's all kinds of things you could say about some alternative world, but, but your instinct, your subjective feeling that God must exist certainly doesn't make it so. Any more than your feeling that Santa Claus exists follows from the idea that there must be something out there. So the jump to God always struck me as bizarre that there's this kind of heavenly, heavenly human-like figure that created a universe that consists of billions and billions of stars, an inconceivable amount of space, and we occupy this tiny speck on it, and that's what God cares about? I thought that was just loony. And then there's a third bridge you crossed, which is the hardest for your parents, and it's pretty hard for me, which is okay, once you live in this world where you can have completely random miracles and you've got supernatural beings and great big daddies in the sky, why Christianity? There's so much else out there. How can you, how can you say with any confidence that you got it right when you pick this one? And none of those ever made any sense to me. They've, I've come to understand how enriching they are for people who are on your journey, but I could never get over any of those bridges. Yeah. No. And it makes a lot of sense. And I still, I still revisit the very questions that you're bringing up, not exactly as you articulated that, but I think it's worth re-examining our faith, you know, because at the end of the day, I'm not as committed to believing in a particular orthodoxy as I am to believing what's true, you know? So to ask these questions that you're bringing up or some version of them, if I believe, if what I believe is true, it'll stand up to that scrutiny, you know, and the, the irony and the poetry of, of some of the conclusions that I've arrived at is some of them are irreducible and the most empirically verifiable things in the universe, but only to me, you know, like as much as I've studied apologetics, the most irreducible ones, I could never empirically prove to anyone else. Uh, they're just, I, I could give you hints of, of what kind of pointed me in a certain direction. For example, uh, there are certain things that some of my friends who are atheists or agnostics might uh, chalk up to evolutionary biology, but at a certain point, there's a chasm there that evolutionary biology do just doesn't do it for me. Like our appreciation of music and beauty, for example, you know, I, I don't know. I, there are certain things that to me are echoes of, of a creator God, uh, that that way of thinking about it makes more sense to me than all of the other possibilities uh, that 
I've considered. So, you know, I, I'm still, listen, man, I ain't God. That, that's the other irreducible conclusion. Like there is a God and I ain't God, <laughs> you know? So, um, so I, I, I could be wrong about all this stuff. Well, the, the, the most important phrase I think you used in that paragraph was makes sense to me. And here's yet another bridge I couldn't cross. I am an opponent of subjectivism. The idea that anything is true because it makes sense to me, um, I reject. Mm. That's not a valid way to go through life because once you give yourself permission to be the arbiter of truth and to say, well, you know, I think it's true, therefore it's true. You're in the world of arbitrary narcissistic conclusions. So I don't allow myself to do that. And that to me creates an obstacle to believing stuff just because I think it should be true. Um, I certainly agree with you about the extraordinary power, for example, of music. And when I listen to Bach's B minor mass or Beethoven's ninth, um, on a good day, I'm, I'm deeply stirred. Um, but, but I don't see that as evidence particularly of, of supernatural forces or supernatural beings. And, and I don't particularly need to. Yeah. When you talk about God, well, I'm interrupting, but, but at some point I, I'd just like to know, is God for you a kind of spiritual force out there? Um, or does God, a living being that you have a personal relationship that intervenes in your life? If you know, if you get the distinction. Yeah, Kind I of do. deism versus evangelicalism or something of that sort. Yeah. So where I start is God is the frame of reference for what is good, if I'm going to define it. And God has some of those qualities that only, a, you know, an actual God can have, you know, sovereign and um, all powerful and all knowing and all these things. But starting with the frame of reference that God, excuse me, starting with God is a frame of reference for what is good and what we derive as humans, as creatures um, for how to know what is good. Now, the way that you asked is a personal relationship with God. I think that God ha can have a personal relationship with me because if he's infinite or very infinite, however you want to think of gender-wise, a, a concept of God, then yeah, that God can have, uh, just theoretically, if we're thinking of it that way, uh, a personal relationship with me. Um, now, what do I actually believe? I don't, like, I, I don't, I, I'm always... Uh, I always look askance at those people who say, God just talked to me and said, go to aisle 12 at Kmart. And I'm going <laughs> to, you know, like that again. So, okay. So I do need to push back on something that doesn't make, I was going to say that doesn't make sense to me. So I'm not sure if it takes incredible discipline that I admire to askew that kind of a thing, or if you are rejecting the virtue of discernment, does that make sense? What, what I'm, what I'm pushing back on? I don't really understand the vocabulary of discernment. I've heard it used, but it's, you might need to explain that a little bit. So um, I, I don't know. I'd put it in the same category, at least as personal agency, uh, judgment. Um, yeah. So when I say it has to, it has to reckon, like there's something in me that is like, uh, what are those things where, you, you know, you tap one thing and it resonates and the other the tuning, I forget what it's called, but mm -hmm. it has to, it has to, there's something in me that intuitively 
can see what's right. And frankly, there's stuff in, in your work where you have some irreducible conclusions of what's right and what we should all agree upon. Uh, sometimes you talk about as priorities or values, you know, so at a certain point, there has to be something that resonates with you about it here. Let me find what I'm talking about. Okay. So for example, you talk about in uh, the constitution of knowledge, an epistemic regi regime should provide three public goods. If um, so, let, let me go on. So first knowledge, second freedom, third peace. I was just going to ask you about epistemic regime. I, I love that, um, that packaging, if you will. Um, but how would a community settle on the three public goods as their compass? Like on what authority? And at what point do you as an individual within that community submit to, yes, I agree with that? So it's a, it's a very deep question and it's probably the most challenging question for an atheist. Where do your values come from? How do you anchor your principles in something larger than yourself? And I'm gonna try out something on you that, that I hope will be the basis for at least part of a book in the future. Okay. Um, and see what you think. But, but I have this idea that there are kind of four existential questions in life that people feel deep needs for answers to. And the problem is that religion can answer two of them, but not the other two. And what I call liberal science, you know, this whole method of, of inquiry, um, you know, trying to disconfirm stuff, and consulting with each other and all that. It can answer two, but it can't answer the other two. So the two that religion can provide satisfying answers to at a human level, I would dispute those answers at an intellectual level, but never mind are morality and mortality. Um, why do we die and what happens after death? That's, in my world, the answer to that is pretty darn satisfying, which is you cease to exist and your molecules disappear into the universe. And it is as if you were never there, um, except for that brief time when you were. Deeply, deeply unsatisfying. And there are even people who say religion evolved in humans as a way around that problem, because otherwise, why live? Why reproduce? Um, and the second is morality, which is, can you ground your values in something larger than yourself or your community or pragmatism? Which are the things I fall back on? Can you say this is true? And lots and lots of great liberal philosophers, you know, people like Kant, have struggled with that. And they've come kind of close. You know, they've, they've made a, a good stab at it, but I don't think they're all the way there. Um, and that's a conundrum for people like me. Now, I would say that you claim to have a basis for your morality, but in fact, you're just making it up too, because <laughs> you've invented God as a way to give yourself an anchor. But, but the point is, people who believe what you do do have a story about that. And it's, it's in some sense, a deeply sensible story for human beings. But okay, so what are the other two things that I think I can answer that you're stuck on? The first is, the problem of magic or miracles, which I alluded to earlier. And that's the epistemic problem that once you allow yourself to say things are true, if I feel them true, or there are agencies in the universe which can suspend cause and effect at will, make two plus two equals five, they're omnipotent. Um, any kind of crazy shit can happen at any time. Rationality goes away 
whenever you wanted to. And you could say, well, I'm Corey Nathan. I'm a well-educated guy. I don't believe in some of the crazy stuff that, you know, a lot of cults do, but you could, there's nothing stopping you right. epistemically from becoming one of those people and saying, well, you know, God made it happen. So it happened. Yeah. And then, so you have trouble with magic. You can't rule it out. You can't order your universe without it. And then the fourth is the problem of murder. I'm doing this to get M so I can remember them, but that's the problem of theodicy. Just as I can't get all the way to grounding morality, I can get part of the way there. You can't get all the way to explaining why an omnipotent, omniscient, and good God would create a universe that is, let's face it, full of suffering and evil. Free will doesn't get you there. Oh, a, lot of people have, a lot of people have tried, but explain smallpox. Explain why God makes little children suffer from horrible diseases. Explain earthquakes. You understand all that. I totally understand it. And, you know, Pastor Tim Keller, a man I deeply respect, a very learned man, has, has said candidly that he can fill maybe two-thirds or three-quarters of that bucket with all the explanations he can think of, but he can't get all the way there. So where I wind up thinking is that, that both of these worldviews are in some way existentially incomplete. And the person I envy is, not envy, but, but kind of the person who who I think in some ways has the best of both worlds is Francis Collins, a great scientist who is also a believer and can have most of those things. Right, right. I, I am more at ease with the notion that there are huge gaps, uh, partly because I, I've asked these types of questions of myself before arriving at certain conclusions that I had to go and structure a life around. And then still, even when I made decisions knowing full well that I wasn't a hundred percent there, not only that certain conclusions that I arrived at opened up a thousand more questions. So man, you touch on a lot there. And, and I, I don't know, I, I don't know if you want me to respond to any of that, but I'm probably along the lines of, of Tim Keller where we can we can talk about free will, um, but let me just rewind a second. And more so than the existence of God is understanding my place in in the universe and my place in a story, my place in a community, my place in a family. Right. So, I, I guess that makes me a very Jewish Christian because. What so when when we still like we still observe certain holidays, we did um, the Seder uh, about a month ago. Um, and that's one of my favorites because um, because it places me in a story. It's something that I know that my father did as a little boy in his in his house in Brooklyn. And I know that my grandfather, who we went and and um, observed some, a lot of the holidays with in his synagogue, he did as a little boy. And, you know, generation before generation, my, my bar mitzvah invitation said, um, uh, as my father and grandfather before me, you know, not just my, my father's side, but my mother's side too. I know that the Mertics and the, um, and the Kleinfelds came from Romania and Germany, and they were observing these, these things too, telling this story in peculiar, particular ways, right? And I am continuing that story. Just the act of telling the story is continuing the story. Now, something else that made sense to me, again, sorry, that, that phrase, um, 
but it, it fits in with a better understanding of why I'm here, you know? And these were the questions that I was asking as a little kid before I even hit junior high school. You know, I remember coming across in the Yom Kippur service, man comes from dust and ends in dust. Uh, I think it was in the Neela service. I'm like, what? Like, I, I don't understand. Like, but why? Why am I here? Why? Just asking why, why, why? You know, so to your point, I'll wrap this up this way, is being part of a story and some really dear, dear friends have come to the same conclusion that you have, that an all-knowing, sovereign uh, God, omniscient, uh, all good God, how could there be smallpox? How could there, you know, the immediate questions that come to us immediately. I, I would say I can't account for that. I, I can't. Uh, any answer that I give you is going to seem trite. But I think what I can tell you is that, yes, there are problems in the world. There is disease in the world. And, I, you know, of those problems, I'm a part of it, you know, uh, not, not being falsely humble or whatever, taking a flagellum to myself. But I, I do feel that I'm, I'm a part of it. But also in the Jewish conception of it, I can be part of the tikkun olam. I can be part of healing the world. You know, and, and, you know, what you were saying before, I forget if we were recording already, but like the idea of, of God, whether, <laughs> whether I believe in God or not, I'm still Jewish, you know, and uh, that, that sort of thing. So whether we believe in God or not, I think we can both agree that there are certain problems in the world that I can do a little part into Kun Olam. And especially if I'm joined in common cause with others who identify some of those root problems that we can, we can join together in common cause in addressing some of those problems, which frankly, not to blow smoke up your ass, but I, I think you do that. I think the, the schema of the constitution of, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about the other book that I read um, over the last month or so, but the schema of, of the constitution of knowledge, I think is a great framework, a great set of lenses through which to really reckon with some some primary symptoms of this disease that's ailing us so i give you a lot of credit for seeing that anyway before we go on to that though does, does that make sense to, or am i completely full of shit <laughs> well it it's it's interesting you're you're a christian right i guess because you believe in the greek testament you believe in the resurrection of jesus that he died to save you but you are a pretty jewish kind of christian oh the very jewish of, yeah, like a Jesus the kind kinds of, of questions you're asking and, and the kind of continuity that you talk about in communities that you talk about. Yeah, we're on the same page on wanting to do our little bit to make the world a better, having kind of a, a sense of, of the past that, that's much larger than ourselves. And my observation, you can tell me, Corey, if this is true of your observation, is that if I made a scatter plot and one axis is how religious are people versus how secular are they? And the other axis is how beneficent as human beings are they versus how malevolent are they? To what extent do I want to be like them and admire them versus to what extent do I think, you know, I would avoid this person if I could. 
so to me, the relationship between tikkun olam and faith per se is pretty thin, if it exists at all. Who are good and admirable and Christians who are wretched. And that the same is true of, of secular people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a profound point. And I, yeah, I mean, if I had to, if I had to say anything about that right now, I would say that, yeah, the relationship between religiosity and goodness, if we want to call it that, or moral behavior, seem a lot more arbitrary now, you know, and increasingly so. But I, now that I think about it, I wonder if though that folks, there are so many individuals, and this is a historic problem, of people hijacking the language of God or the language of religion and the symbols of religion that are the least godly people, if you just want to use that as, as, a, as a synonym. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, you'd probably agree we're seeing it right now. Well, we always see it. You know, I'm, I'm homosexual and I can tell you that the brutality and cruelty and arbitrariness and hypocrisy that have been dished out to people like me in the name of religion for thousands of years now, certainly by Christians in America over the past decades is, is hellish and has nothing to do with the spirit of Jesus. So there's that. Um, it's not to condemn all Christians or all Christianity, but there's that. And then there's also, I'm not sure when this episode will air, but two days ago, a devastating report was released into the Southern Baptist Convention's cover-up, essentially, of uh, criminal sexual offenses by its leaders who ignored what was being brought to them by, by women and um, actually attacked the women who were bringing it. And that comes on the heels of something you've been courageous in talking about, which is the increasing politicization of the evangelical movement um, and the religious world and its increasing embrace of secular forces that are cruel and, and often deceitful um, in politics. So I, I think, you know, being religious um, has, has not been a particularly reliable guide in America lately to good moral behavior. So let me ask you a question, not to divert or distract, but can you read the New Testament, the, the letters uh, and gospels that make up the New Testament, the way that you might read John Locke? Or does the praxis of the people who subscribe to that set of documents cancel any authority that it might have? Oh, I can certainly read them. I had a, a real, forgive the use of the phrase, revelation. But I kind of had one when I went out in my 20s. I went out and got Richmond Lattimore's translation of the uh, four Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles. Lattimore is a great Greek translator, but he's secular. And he does his best to capture the real, the voice, um, if you could read the Greek. And Jesus is an incredibly radical, visionary bold figure who comes out of nowhere in human history with ideas that are so remarkable and profound that, that you know there's all I think there's nobody like him but maybe Socrates in some respects um, and then you read the Acts of the Apostle and you see there are a bunch of blunderers 
they don't understand Jesus's vision particularly. In the gospel, he's annoyed with them all the time because they don't get it. They think it's like the miracles. They're obviously, you know, can we say they're a little bit dim some of the time? <laughs> yeah, a lot of the time. And so, so I'm reading all this and thinking, well, if Christians actually read this book, this would be a whole different religion and they would be structuring their lives differently. But maybe I mean, the, the, the gospel of Jesus as he actually preaches it is transformative, but I don't see that in the way Christians lead their lives most of the time. I see something more like the opposite. So I feel like in many ways, I wouldn't wanna say hypocrisy is a defining feature of modern Christianity, but I sure think Christians could try a lot harder. So you just distilled my greatest ambivalence of the last 20 plus years. <laughs> Because what, <laughs> what, what really convinced me was reading what I recognized as the most brilliant of our Torah I'd ever read. I later you know, understood that I was reading the Sermon on the Mount. It was the first time that I'd read it. It was October of 2000. And uh, that I had been doing a great deal of study prior to that. Um, it, it was borderline obsessive, but it was, it was the sermon. On, actually, it was, James was the first letter that I read. And then I went to the beginning of Matthew and just kind of started reading straight through. But the Sermon on the Mount, not even knowing that it was that, is what really pulled me into that teaching. Uh, if I'm being completely transparent, I would say that, that Paul really annoyed me. <laughs> you know, getting through those the, Paul's letters, uh, uh, he almost lost me. Uh, but then I got to uh, some Peters. I got back to James. And um, reading through Revelation, by the time I got to Revelation 21 and 22, I, whatever it was, it, it just, I, I was convinced enough on certain basic questions, but okay, I become a Christian, I get dunked, I do the baptizing thing. And uh, ever since then, I've, I've come upon these huge bumps in the road, mostly <laughs> I I could go into detail, but the best way is, is to sum it up is, is my brother uh, to describe one of my brother's favorite bumper stickers. And, and that is Jesus may love you, but everybody else thinks you're an asshole. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, it's, it's happened where like I, I'm reading scripture and I'm taking it very seriously, like on a philosophical level and a theological level. And it is at odds with the socio-political positions. A lot of, of a lot of people I go to church with that defines a lot of those church communities, just as you're describing. So yeah, it's, I'm Christian because I believe it and I can't shake that belief in certain, you know, central uh, tenets, but I'm still a truth seeker at the end of the day. So if there is something else uh, that, <laughs> I'm going to piss you off now, that makes more sense. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm still a truth seeker at the end of the day. Well, I guess the, the thing I wonder about, not necessarily in your particular case, but none of what I'm about to say says that anything Jesus said was wrong, but, but I would have thought there would be a lot more crisis of faith in the church. I would have thought there'd be a lot more anger at the hypocrisy that we see from the pulpits and now from lots of evangelicals who were many of them full on in support of, for instance, the MAGA movement with all its delusions and cruelty. Yeah. That doesn't sound to me like Jesus at all. No, I mean, it's very opposite. I, 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 so I read my Bible every day and I, 
I could on virtually every page make a case against the words, actions, and character of Donald Trump and, and what's now defining an entire MAGA movement. You know, everywhere we look in central tenets of scripture, which I think align pretty well with a lot of a lot of the philosophers that, that you espoused in your books. Um, so yeah, you, you're not going to get an argument from me there. And again, it's it's one of it's it's central to my greatest ambivalence right now. I can't shake what I believe theologically, philosophically, but yet I look around at, at a lot of my friends and what they are not just accepting but celebrating. It's like the yeah, end. and and it's getting worse. The, it, it looks like increasingly the evangelical movement and the MAGA movement are merging and becoming the same thing. I think you've talked about this with some other people on your show, um, but some of the, the more recent data that the Pew has come up with actually is finding that a lot of people are identifying as evangelical, not because of what they're reading in the Bible, right. not because of a conversion experience or being born again, but because that's what we do now, if we're MAGA people. Um, yeah. It's an identity merger of the politics of MAGA with the communities of the evangelical church. And meanwhile, that seems to be driving away some of the people who are more oriented toward the scriptural doctrines. Yeah, And, and where that leads, I don't know, maybe you do, but it, it doesn't really sound good to me. Yeah, you know, I, I've had this, uh, this question and explored this a bit with, with some others who are still devout Christians is, do we just seed the word evangelical? Do we just seed the, the identity of Christian? Do we just, do, do we just give, okay, that's yours. You know, that's an idol that you can now worship, but we need to distinguish from who you are because who you are is very different than what I'm reading in my Bible. I'm putting my hand on your constitution of knowledge. Um, yeah. Is, <laughs> I think that's poetic, actually. So I, I can't believe we've been talking for almost an hour and we haven't really dug into the book. Can I ask you some questions about some of the stuff in there? Yeah, yeah, you can. I'm sorry if I'm taking you off. Course. No, this is great. This is, this I've been great. I've been a fan of the podcast for a while, and oh and man, you, you raised so many interesting questions. I, I knew I could ask you some and and uh, learn. So thank you for that. Oh man, that's uh, what a thrill! I <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you. Uh, that's really encouraging. Um, okay. So I did want to ask you, okay. So going back to denial, my 25 years without a soul first written in 96, uh, re-released in 2019, uh, published in 2013. And then, yeah, I, I re-released it, um, self-published it okay. last year. It went out of print. So I grabbed it back and, you know, put it back out there. So you said something really striking toward the beginning of the book, and then you dealt with it again toward the end. Uh, the way you put it in the beginning was the soul is a sovereign, but without love, it has no kingdom. In a matter of fact way, I began to understand that I was a monster. Could you unpack that for us? Well, the, the thing that people need to understand is that I was born in 1960 in a world where homosexuality was inconceivably immoral and wrong. Um, I did not want that. And I wasn't even from a super conservative household. That's not where this was coming from. Plus I wanted what you have. I wanted the wife, the kids, the place in the community, the, the acceptance, the respectability. 
1960 or 1970 when I was 10 or even 1980 when I was 20, um, to say I'm a homosexual immediately cuts you off from all of that. It puts you way out on the frontier of human existence, trying to build your own morality with a small group of pariahs in a separate community. And I was desperate to not have that. The problem was I felt from day one, zero attraction to girls and women. And not the way you felt little attraction because you were five or six, but I mean, those circuits were dead. Mm. But from very early on, I did feel strong, irrefutable attraction to boys and men. Things like big muscles. The first real crush didn't come until around puberty, but way earlier than that, I just knew that I was obsessed with masculinity and wanting to be like my classmate Lee, who was so charismatic and handsome and athletic and all of that. I was desperate for none of that to be true. And my way of coping with that was to think, well, whatever it is I'm feeling, it's not love. It's not a desire for sex. It's some kind of weird tropical disease. I'm the only person who has ever had it. <laughs> I'm a freak. And I took all of the energy that young people usually dedicate to falling in love or developing a crush or just feeling good old fashioned youthful lust. I turned all of that energy into self-hatred and believing that I could never love anyone, that I would never kiss or touch anyone because I was not gay, but a freak. So that's what I meant when I wrote that sentence. If, if a person believes in their innermost heart that there is no destination of love in their life, that's, that's a gutting thing to believe. It makes you half of a person. It makes you a soulless person. And that's what I was. And it took me until age 25 to get past it, which by the way, is too long. Yeah. Yeah. There were, there were things you said in the afterward that you've had many straight people identify with what you describe in the book and you can add my name to the list. There were moments. Really? Oh, absolutely. I think that well, for one, you described it at one point as a monster, thought of yourself as a monster or a freak of nature. I don't know if I would have used those words, but there were definitely moments when, however vaguely, I might have thought of myself as broken in some way. Now, I later understood when I was 35, I was diagnosed with um, uh, manic depression or bipolar disorder. And... <laughs> Kind of like your experience when you were 25, the way you described it in the book, it, it was like this, everything made sense. It, not that all of, not the, the disorder that I was grappling with, I had been grappling with basically my whole life, had gone away, but at least I had a vocabulary to understand what was going on. And then I could name certain things and develop uh, a set of, put some arrows in my quiver to kind of deal with the lows and understand the highs when they were happening. But you, you, you said, you know, we've talked about this a little bit. We kind of brushed upon it when you were 25, you came to your own, I don't know, diagnosis or discovery or, or what, how would you, how would you call it? I would call it the standard word is of course 
coming out, yeah. but it's much more profound than that. Um, it's like what you experienced to factor 10, because you found a label that explained yourself to yourself. It finally dawned on me, we can come back to how that happened in a minute, but it dawned on me that these incredibly intense, neurotic, self-hating feelings, that there was another word for these yearnings I was experiencing, and that that word was love. And that's transformative, right? I mean, you see some of that in your own conversion to Christianity, I guess, but the realization that what you're experiencing is just love. Yeah. And that that, that was possible for me was life-changing. So how it actually happened was just that I got older and could one bad rationalization fell away and the next would replace it. Like when I was 15, I assumed, well, you know, I'm just slow to puberty, but the circuits will turn on because they do for everyone or else the species wouldn't reproduce. But then I got to be 18 and that wasn't working. So then I went with, uh, well, it's because I haven't had sexual practice. And the way you heterosexuals do it is you're not really attracted to women, but you get used to them. Once you get good at it, it gets fun. <laughs> I mean, this is crazy shit, right? <laughs> this is awesome. But... but so then I get to be about 22 and that's not working for me because I've now tried sex with women and completely failed. They didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I wasn't even interested. So that one doesn't work because I'm now seeing that I'm not going to get the practice and, and on it goes. And, and finally, after college, I realized I need to go somewhere where I don't know a soul. And I moved to Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And one of my best friends there is gay and he's very gentle with me, but, but I begin to see that this isn't crazy. This isn't sick, that this might be me. And I still remember one day I was about 24. I opened up to him about how I felt about this one kid in my class who I felt deeply in love with and stayed in love with for many years, a wonderful guy, my book's dedicated to him. And I described how I felt, how I just, every time I saw him, I would feel a rushing sensation that all I wanted in life was to see him with his shirt off, to touch him. And I finally said, you don't think that could be a crush, do you? And he just smiled and he said, Jonathan, it sure sounds that way to me. Yeah. And so then it was just a matter of about a year or so before I was pushed to the edge by, I was a wonderful woman who I was dating, kind of dating, but I wouldn't touch her. You know, I'd, I'd take the opposite end of the couch and find a reason to leave before anything happened. And she finally, she had it with that. And she finally said, I need to know what's going on. And she wouldn't let me off the hook until I came clean to her. And I, I could lie to myself. I could not lie to her. And I said, I think I might be gay. And after that, things started happening very quickly. Yeah. You describe it. Uh, you described an experiment where folks, people were wearing lenses and the the only way they could see things was it seemed upside down and you know they took the glasses off and it took a little bit to adjust to seeing things right side up but it was that that was kind of like the experience for you yeah a lot of my life since then has been motivated by trying to spare other young people going through what i what i went through and that that was my biggest motivation for the biggest cause of my life which is the same-sex marriage movement it, the idea, if I'd had the idea when I was eight years old that I could be married to someone I loved, mm. 
and be accepted in my community and have that anchor to another person. Um, I wasn't interested in sex, but my, mar- my, my parents' marriage failed. And I understood that the pain that that caused. And I didn't, I, I, I wonder what you have. Yeah. And there are now kids who just grow up assuming that if they're gay, maybe your son or daughter, that, that they can be married. Um, they can have that life partner. They can have the, the giving and the receiving that goes with that. One of the most profound and poignant moments in the book uh, was toward the end. You were talking about a breakup in your 30s. And <laughs> I might cry when I say this, but you said, I am the man who is grateful to fall down because he once believed he would never walk. <laughs> I just thought that was beautiful. Um, so, Thanks. yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, we haven't really talked about current events, but are you? You've done so much work um, for uh, gay marriage from I think a, as early as the mid '90s, right? Yeah, 19, 1995, I threw myself into that effort. Are you concerned at all about the implications? Uh, did Did you read the the draft uh, opinion? Uh, I didn't read it from beginning to end. I read some of the excerpts. I figured I'd wait and see what they actually do. Uh, yeah. Am I concerned that the court will overrule same-sex marriage? I am concerned. I'm not alarmed, if that's what you were going to ask. Yeah. Did yeah. I anticipate correctly? Yeah. No, that, that's exactly what I was going to ask. Uh, it's funny because I've, I've learned so much about the conservative legal movement over the last year and a half, two years. I listened to... Um, David French and uh, Sarah Isger's podcast, Advisory Opinions, um, learned a lot from there. Some other uh, podcasts, wrote some other books. But for the most part, especially around the election, I gained nothing but confidence in the conservative legal movement. So my, my friends who know the court say there's, there's not five votes to overturn Obergefell right now. The logic of Alito's draft opinion is pretty harmful to same-sex marriage because Mm. it basically says, you know, it's not in the constitution and courts shouldn't invent it. And so same-sex marriage is vulnerable. On on the other hand, um, marriage is much less controversial than abortion. It does not involve the killing of potentially another human being. That's not a legal distinction, but the court, as we know, reads the election returns. And it is there's a subsequent decision called Bostock in which the court recognized a statutory right for trans people to be free of discrimination in the workplace. And the rationale they used was one involving sex discrimination. Right. And even, even Gorsuch. Gorsuch wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. And that rationale allows even, even on Alito's reasoning, if the court goes with the rationale that of denying gay people marriage is a form of sex discrimination, and it is, then they can relocate Obergefell away from the grounds that Justice Kennedy used, which is basic fairness, due process, and onto the more narrow specific grounds of gender discrimination. And so maybe they'll do that, but the answer is that, that, that we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, lots of questions. Um, man, yeah. I feel like we should do like a series of these because I, I haven't even, I have like six pages of notes and questions to ask you. And I, I haven't even gotten to my well, questions. I'll, I'll come back. You know, I, 
I listen to the podcast. I might as well be on it. It saves me listening to those other people. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, I want to ask you if you think the Bible condemns homosexuality and therefore what you think of my marriage. But we don't have to go there if you want to go somewhere else. No, I, I think um, so. OK, so if you would have asked me in when would it have been 2004, I would have been I would have had much greater questions. I probably would have evaded by taking a look at some verses uh, that list a bunch of, uh, you know, what we think of as sins. And the way I would have evaded it is by saying, well, I'm guilty of more of those sins than you are. But I have been talking with some really smart theologians, uh, people who know the original language a lot better than I do, um, taking another look at uh, some of those parts of, uh, especially the New Testament, and coming to the conclusion, this is interesting, since we are two days removed from the release of that report, coming to the conclusion that specific places where the, the, the English word in, in translations that we have is homosexuality, the actual words describe the behavior of people in the Southern, the, the leaders in the Southern Baptist Conference much more accurately. Um, it, 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 I would argue that, that I'm just thinking out loud right now because it, it just occurred to me, but what I would say is that it's describing um, sexual immorality you know, and even in the constitution of knowledge, there, there's a sexual behavior that is destructive to other human beings. Now, there are translations, many translations, where they use the word homosexuality for that. But I think if we were to take a look at the original language, I would think that, you know, sexual abuse, sexual predation, you know, and trying to silence victims might be a more accurate understanding of what those actual words mean. I might be way off base. Uh, I'm not trying to say this just because you're here, but it has been a problem for me since at least 2004. So I do want to understand it. I've, I've, I have, I don't speak, you know, ancient Greek, so I'm not the person to, to do it. But if you were to talk to someone like Candace Benbow, uh, who went to Duke Divinity for her graduate degree, uh, if you were to talk to someone like Amy Laura Hall, who's an associate professor at Duke Divinity, um, they, the way that Amy describes it is um, beautifully and wonderfully made gay. I think that's the phrase that she uses. And she's a devout Christian. So <laughs> I keep on going back to makes more sense. Amy Laura Hall's understanding and, and you know, knowledge of ancient Greek, fluency with ancient Greek is much, much more trustworthy to me than... The, the same guys at the church I used to go to that would explain away, you know, Trump's behavior and say, no, it's, you know, we're in a culture war and he's fighting for us. So Amy Laura Hall makes more sense to me than some of the guys uh, from my church, even though I still want to have a coffee with them and just understand them better and maybe hopefully persuade them, uh, persuade some of my friends uh, that I used to go to Bible study with. So, yeah, I, I know more and more evangelicals who, actually in their heart would like to support same-sex marriage because they're now seeing these devoted couples and they're in the parish. Preachers have said this to me, you know, um, I'm in love with this person. I want to settle down and be with them and devote myself in a life of love. And, and 
the pastor feels like he has to say, well, no, it's against God's will. You have to be celibate. And that feels like the wrong answer. And frankly, it is the wrong answer, but they still feel tied by scripture. Um, the word, just a correction, I think it's a correction. Homosexuality is a very new word. It doesn't appear until the 19th century. It's not in any translation of the Bible. So that's not there. And some of the words that are there, like there's a term raha, which is used at one point, and it's been translated as effeminacy, but in fact, no one knows what it means. But, but it seems to me that the, the Bible is clearly speaking to heterosexuals. And it says you should not substitute love of a man for a woman. Um, it's not speaking to homosexuals about people whose nature is to love someone of the same sex and who can find a fulfilling, committed love in that. And you're right that in the ancient world, what Paul was objecting to was what we would call sexual abuse or sexual slavery. These would be older men who as a status symbol would essentially enslave younger men as sex toys and support them and stuff like that in, ex in exchange. But it was by today's standards, it was abhorrent. And Paul was advanced for his time. He said, we shouldn't be doing this, but, but he wasn't talking about me and my husband, Michael. Yeah. So where the rubber meets the road is, you know, if we're talking about Tikkun Olam, I think that two people who love each other that are in a committed relationship are a better reflection of working towards Tikkun Olam. Not only that, just as a libertarian, it's like, you know, that's, does that make you happy? That's awesome. You know, and it like my, that's not my business in a way. Um, so there's so many things that just add up to kind of your, where, where you're at, you know? Um, so it, here's, here's another rubber meets the road moment is my kids went to a Christian school and uh, you talked to Savannah before we hit record. Um, Savannah would describe their experience uh, in that school in particular as religious trauma and some of their friends around this very issue is, is there were young people who were coming to understandings about who they are that at best, at best, they were told you can't talk about it. You know, there was some of that conversion therapy that was that was happening you know, that, that was very damaging, but Savannah and a number of her friends look back on their experience there as, as, as traumatic, understandably so. So far be it from me to say, you know, what you're, how you're identifying is, is sin that I just don't, I don't know. That doesn't seem to me to be helpful or healthful. And what I can tell you is that whether Savannah ends up with a man identifying as a man, a woman identifying as a woman, a man, or some other, there's a whole um, uh, spectrum of, of uh, ways that folks are identifying that I don't frankly understand. I'm trying to. What I do want is for Savannah or any of my kids to be with a person who loves them, be with a person who's a good person and not an asshole. You know, like <laughs> now you're going to make me cry. Yeah. Be with a person who tr treats them well. And, and I've seen both. They've had, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, um, their friends, whatever that that are that, that I'm like, I, I don't I, if this person's identifying as 
she, him, them, they're still an asshole to you. And I, you like, you know, so at the end of the day, I just want my kids to find somebody that loves them too. And, and that um, they, they have a better shot being happy together uh, and making the world a better place, you know, in their little corner of the world. So, yeah, I'm not trying to get out of answering your question head on, but that's, that's what, that's what comes to mind. Well, part of I'm, I'm reluctant to use the word trauma. I do sometimes. So to me, trauma means getting bashed over the head and having your skull split open. So I'm careful about using it as a synonym for discomfort. But, but I think it's fair to say for, for gay Americans my age and lesbian Americans, um, there is a generational trauma associated with what Christian churches did to us. Uh, you couldn't turn on the radio without hearing that we were a stench in God's nostril. Pat Robertson, as late as 2001, said 9-11, no, um, uh, they said that AIDS was God's punishment for being gay. Pat Robertson blamed the terrorist attack on, on gay people. Um, they singled us out for opprobrium. You know, Jesus does not mention homosexuality at all. He does mention divorce. And he says, you can't do it. It's adultery. And we grew up in a world where every day homosexuality was condemned as the worst possible sins. While they were all merrily giving each other, getting divorces, giving each other divorces. And, and we saw the hypocrisy of, of all of that. And we saw the gay kids getting kicked out of their homes by their Christian parents, thrown out on the street. We saw kids, young people, and people on in their 20s and 30s who got AIDS who were disowned by their own parents. We saw the churches turn their back on us because we deserved it. Yeah. Um, we had to, you know, we had to go off and start our own churches and we did. And so I could go on and on. You hear some bitterness here and, and you should. And, and the total number of Christian pastors that I know who have frankly and fully apologized either to me or in public for the way Christendom has treated homosexuals far into the past, but in my lifetime and much of the world and part of America still today, can you guess how many have apologized for that and said we were wrong? I would guess zero. Close, it would be one. And that's a pastor who's become a close personal friend. And that was actually meaningful to have one pastor say, you know, we were wrong. We really messed up. Yeah. But but there's some deep wounds there. Well, I, for, for what it's worth, I'm, I am happy to report that we've found a church that not only is just I, I don't know how to describe it, but I, I will say that I'm actually learning from the church that we go to now. The just, for example, the concept of not just accepting, but affirming uh, folks who identify as gay or bi or trans or queer, um, what have you. So I, I'm actually, I'm at a church community now that uh, I align a lot more with where this church is um, and I'm, I'm learning a lot from them. So yeah, I, I'd like to say that that's the norm, but I do think that that's the exception to the rule, to your point. So again, we, we seem to keep on going back to my ambivalence about this whole Christian thing than uh, <laughs> me convincing you of anything else. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe I'm leading you there partly because I'm part of me, the, this still atheist part uh, just still always 
goes back to thinking, really, how can intelligent people believe this stuff? Yeah. Well, the many layers of hypocrisy and, and all of that. So I do tend to, to wander back in, in that direction. The, I would say that a lot of what we've discussed uh, isn't necessarily, you did address some of the theoretical problems that you have, and, and we could do a couple hours on that alone. But for the most part, we've been talking about not Christ or not Jesus, but the Christians, you know, uh, folks who, who, you know, take ownership of this, this label, this identity, uh, and then take ownership of everything else around them. So that, you know, it's too bad to me because we, it, there's so much brush getting in the way of us being able to see clearly you know, what a little bit of what we talked about before, what Jesus was actually talking about. You know, if, if even if we could take some of what's talked about in scripture uh, on, on the same, on the same plane, as we, as we talk about other literature of antiquity or, or Plato or Aristotle, or fast forward to some of the other great philosophers, um, but we can't, because again, the behavior historically and being Jews, we understand it you know, at the tip of a sword, we've understood it. My grandmother left Cherny Ostrov uh, because of men wearing crosses on their chests, beheading her neighbor's parents and burning down their houses and raping her friends, you know? So these were the men wearing crosses. So this is not a new problem. I, I just, it really grieves me that we spend a great deal of time talking about the men wearing crosses on their chest and not about what the cross actually means. Well, I think that's that's true, and it's it's a source of growing concern and alarm for me as I see the the direction that so much of the evangelical movement is going. And I, I wait for the wake up call, and what would what would Jesus do? But but on the other side, maybe this will encourage you a little. Over the past few years, as I, I mentioned earlier, I've I've had the privilege of getting to know some amazing Christians. Pete Weiner is one of them. Pastor Keller is another. Pastor Chris Davis here in Arlington at Groveton Baptist Church. Um, he's the friend I mentioned who finally just, who just apologized and not a, not a but apology. And other Christians have been kind of leading me through their understanding of Christianity. Um, and it's extremely beautiful. It's, it's not what I thought Christianity was as a kid with, um, with all of its sanctimony and all of its ceremony and all of its exclusiveness and harshness and judgmentalness, you know, um, and in particular, the concept of grace, which I think is probably unique to Christianity. I don't think Judaism has anything that's really like grace, of, but of complete unmerited love and forgiveness. That's an extremely beautiful and powerful thing. And so through them, I have, though, I, though I'm not a believer, I have come much more to understand the power and, and the depth of the vision of Christianity at its best. I'm thinking of the Christianity of, you know, someone like C.S. Lewis. Yeah. And that's been, a, that's been a positive revelation. I just wish I saw that reflected more in Christian life. Yeah. No, I, I was, it, it's true that, that Christianity more often than not looks a lot more like conquistadors, you know, than, than people washing their neighbor's feet. But yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, 
one difference I have with another, a, a better known atheist, Sam Harris. You cite um, him quite often in, in the in, uh, Constitution of Knowledge. You do? Yes. Oh, yeah, because of his podcast. I love yeah. his podcast. And I, yeah, I quote from podcast a lot. So he, he wrote this book called, I think, The End of Faith. And he makes all of the very strong arguments against believing in God. And I agree with him about most of those and could throw in some others of my own. But, but where we disagree is he thinks religion makes people stupid. And I think people make religion stupid. And I think our job, maybe your job as a Christian is to try to make religion less stupid. Oh man. So I have, I have scars from the various Bible studies and church auditoriums that I've gotten kicked out of for just getting up and just asking the wrong question, <laughs> you know? So I, I'm, I'm doing my best, man. I'm doing my level best. And, and I'm, it's not like I'm an authority. All I'm doing is reading the Bible, you know? So when somebody says something stupid about, you know, immigration, that sounds a lot more like Trump than, than the Bible. I just say, Hey, can we just like keep reading here? You know, the Bible doesn't quite say that, you know, but that, that, that's gotten me in trouble. So part of this exercise is figuring out how to do it better, more persuasively, um, how, whatever that looks like. So yeah, that, that, that's part of the exercise for me, man. I feel like I, I feel like we do have to do this again, uh, sooner rather than later, because we haven't even gotten into, I mentioned the one thing about constitution of knowledge, but we really got to do, I have so many. And by that time I, I will have finished the book. So I'll just have that many more questions about it. <laughs> I'd love, I'd love to come back. I really would. Oh man, that'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. And if I'm, if I find myself on the East coast, I owe you dinner, you and your husband for that matter, for sure. <laughs> you, you definitely don't owe me dinner. Conversations like this are a privilege. Oh man. They're actually the best thing about my life. Oh, that's so cool. I get to meet, meet not only smart people, smart people are a dime a dozen, but, but people who are reaching toward wisdom and that's much rarer. Well, you certainly go a long way toward that in your book. I, I do want to say, though, that in all seriousness, one of the reasons, a central objective to this project is to persuade folks to think with more integrity, uh, be a healthier, uh, more ethical community. And I really think that the Constitution of Knowledge addresses many of those problems and threats to that ideal so I, I really do. I really do want to have you back soon so that we can um, we can dive into that. Well, I'd, I'd love to love to dedicate an hour to that. It's the it's the great cause of my life. Awesome. Even beyond gay marriage. Well, sooner rather than later, uh, it's definitely pressing issue. So I, I know that you've been asking me a lot of questions, but before we, we wrap up and do do the thing, uh, do, do you have any last questions for me? Yeah. Should I start a podcast? Oh, do you seriously want to talk about that? Because I love this medium. I love the medium too. And I haven't really seriously thought about doing it, but I wonder if I should. So I think I, the answer is without question, 100% yes. And the reason is I've been thinking this whole time. I feel like I feel more like a guest than I ever have on my podcast today. Um, I think that... Yeah, the answer is yes. I think we should we should maybe have a conversation about that offline. So some some fundamental questions that are worth asking. Can you does does the medium give you 
another platform to engage audiences and offer something up to our culture? Uh, the answer is yes. Do, do you have an ability to have uh, unique conversations or, or participate in larger conversations in a unique way and offer your own, um, your own set of questions to it? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, would there be any number of people, including me, whether it's, you know, the, the way I, I've been thinking about my audiences, um, at least the numbers of folks that are listening is, can we fill the 99 seat equity waiver theaters that I was in or the off-Broadway size houses or the Broadway size houses, you know, and, and for you, absolutely. The, the, the answer is yes. So you, you've been doing this. This is something that you've, you've been doing for at least 30 years, but just in other mediums. So pod, doing a podcast is simply one other medium to have these conversations, to explore these issues. So the answer is without question, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, that's, that is an unambiguous answer. Okay. So, so uh, before we end this part of our conversation, uh, tell folks how they can find you uh, your work, uh, you online, where can people find you? JonathanRausch.com. I don't post all my stuff up there, but I try to put the more important pieces, the things that, that I want people to read up there. Yeah. Um, and I'm on Twitter, uh, John, I think it's John, J-O-N underscore Rausch, R-A-U-C-H. Yeah. John underscore Rausch, uh, R-A-U-C-H. That'll all be in the, um, in the show notes. So uh, yeah. thanks. And good luck summarizing this conversation in the show notes. <laughs> oh man, I'm just going to let it play, man. I'm just going <laughs> to let it roll. I might just put the whole transcript as the show notes. Um, so <laughs> thanks again. I can't wait to do this again because we really do have to dive uh, deeper into the constitution of knowledge, a defense of truth. Uh, I was going to use that for the title of the episode, but I, I don't think I can now. Um, it might be like <laughs> John grills Corey, you know, or something. Yeah, we're in Corey. We're in Corey defenses Christianity against the relate, relentless assault of, a, <laughs> of an angry atheist. I love it. I love it. So there are some atheists that are much more persuasive to me than others. You know, uh, so Hitchens, I, I always found very compelling, but Dawkins, not so much, you know, or early part of the 20th century. Bertrand Russell really rocks my world. Have you read any any of uh, Russell's? That's oh, yeah. Russell was foundational when I was a teenager. Why I'm not a Christian. Yeah. His, uh, my favorite was a shorter essay, not as famous, called Has Christianity Contributed Anything to Civilization? <laughs> and he, he works his way through it. And he says, yes, on balance, the Julian calendar. And that's all. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so to speak. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Okay, so all right. Well, email me if you want me back, and uh, it's great talking to you. Yeah, There's no disappointment. Oh, good, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. So, <laughs> uh, this was this was really terrific. So, uh, can't wait to do this again. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts, and tell a friend about TPNR. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's politics and religion. Us, politics and religion. Us, and you can even support our program through the Patron app on our site or on Patreon at patreon.com slash politics and religion. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. 
You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Bye.